G'day guys, Tom Craig here. Welcome to my podcast, The Help Side. Now the help side is a term in hockey that refers to the other side of the pitch, away from where the ball is and the action happens. And in the same way, the aim of this podcast is to give you, the listener, an insight into the other side of elite hockey players, to hear about their highs, their lows, and what makes them tick. We'll also hear about the journey they went through, from having fun in the backyard to playing out their dreams on the world stage. So whether you're a player, a coach, an umpire, a parent, a fan, or just a fan of sport in general, I'm hoping this podcast gives you a window into the world of elite athletes, and even better, encourages you to get more involved in our great sport. You can hear the chat we had last week and others you may have missed by searching The Help Side on any major podcast platform. And if you want, you can like and subscribe our page to make sure that you're up to date with the most recent episodes. Anyway, that's enough of that. Let's get to this week's guest. Goes to Dixon. Dixon with the drag flick, and Dixon scores. Roto went on the dummy run, and Dixon gets his first goal as captain of Great Britain. Comes to Dixon. Dixon straight shots, and Dixon scores this time. Adam Dixon is the current captain of the Great Britain men's hockey team and is one of the most highly respected players in world hockey, having represented England and GB on more than 250 occasions. Adam is an Olympian, a dual Commonwealth Games medalist, a European Championships gold medalist, a Hockey India League champion, and above all else, he is a ripping bloke who I had the good fortune of playing with at the Kalinga Lancers back in 2017. Now we cover quite a bit of ground in this interview, so much so that we've had to split it into two separate episodes. In this episode, part A, Adam gives us an insight into the GB high performance setup and the challenges of the lockdown, including how he was forced into early isolation with suspected coronavirus symptoms. Don't worry, it's alright, he's okay. We then talk about the current state of the game in the UK, a country where hockey is enjoying a bit of a renaissance following the London Olympics and the gold medal success of the GB women at the Rio Games. Adam is open, thoughtful, and has some interesting perspectives on where the game needs to head in order to break into the mainstream. This is the help side of Adam Dixon. Here we go. I'm here with Adam Dixon, captain of GB and England hockey team. Two is that roles. right? That's a strange role. Like, I don't think many countries in the world have like a... No, is there, are there any up? others? Um, no, not, not that I can think of. I can't think of any. Um, yeah, pretty unique. Very unique. Um, You're one of a kind. Not a bad way to start off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one of a kind. Uh, thank you. Um, Self-introduction. That's all we'll do. Adam Dixon, one of a kind. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we're going to get into that a little bit later because that is kind of interesting. But first of all, you're cooped up at home in the UK. Now, we've only had Aussies on the show so far. But I imagine it's a little bit different for you guys over in Europe. How was it when the announcement was released and what have you been doing since yeah it's certainly a funny time i think i'd just kick off by saying i think we're actually really lucky as a group of gb hockey players we're still you know funded to train even though we're in lockdown training in isolation um there's much bigger worse things going on out there in the, in the world and yeah just count ourselves very lucky um but yeah we the whole olympic thing was obviously huge huge breaking news um had that weird period where i think everybody sort of knew the olympics was going to be canned but then 
no one would come out and say it. And I think that was probably the worst period. Um, just sitting there training as, as normal, training as if you were going to turn up to the Olympics in July and um, being peak physical fitness. And everybody, everybody knew that that wasn't going to be the case. So to finally get the news was like a big sense of relief. We had been in regular dialogue, I think every single day via email with our performance director. So that was the whole men's and women's squads. He'd give a daily update on, on where the um, the British Olympic Association, where their stance was and all the various sports and how they were going to try and feed into the IOC meetings and things. And they were keeping us updated as best as they possibly could. We actually got the news. Um, it's sort of, you know, the way the Wikimedia works at times <laughs> Um, most people saw it on Twitter before we actually got an announcement from 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 um, GB Hockey, but that's through no fault of of theirs. So um, we then later had a big conference call, like all sort of forty um, members of the squad, like and the guys on the fringe and all the staff and everybody included, with the performance director and Danny Kerry, just talking through what was going on and you're going to go into isolation. Um, no more train, centralized training at Bisham Abbey, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it was just, yeah, it's just been a really strange time. You've seen all the all the videos on social media, people keeping themselves busy with training and doing all sorts. We've been quite lucky that the that GB Hockey had a little pot of money available just to, you know, I think each player got a couple of hundred quid to get like go out and buy as much uh, training equipment as they could. So if you weren't able to get into Bisham Abbey and raid the gym on the last day that it was open, <laughs> like loads of people did, um, you could still, you know, buy whatever you needed um, to some extent. So the garden now has got a TRX in there. I just do bodyweight circuits and stuff on and, you know, little things like that, which has been quite good. Um, but I think we're about 40 days into isolation. It's a long time. Me and my fiance and, uh, we actually did show some sort of um, symptomatic signs like yep. illness-wise before yep. the UK went into full lockdown. So we were already isolating on the yeah. advice of our GB doctors. So, yeah, we'd done 10 to 14 days before the UK kicked in. So we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're well in it. Um, I think <laughs> well, we've only had said. one argument. So <laughs> I think we're doing, we're doing okay. <laughs> and you bought a bike as well. Yeah, bought a bike. Um, I, th- I just there's only so much training you can do in your back garden, <laughs> especially when your back garden is sort of five square meters. So it's um, yeah, I've just been getting out, doing you know thirty, forty k on the bike, couple of hours, absolute max. Um, yeah. And actually, we've been amongst all of the um, the isolation, like tedious stuff going on like is that the weather's actually been pretty good in the uk yeah okay. like if and i think that adds you know just like contributing towards mental health and it's good and sanity for all this is really really good i think oh, if, we were, having, oh, yeah, if this had happened in the middle of our winter and everyone was cooped up indoors it'd be able to, yeah it'd be much much worse so yeah um yeah things have been not amazing but we're making the certainly making the most of, of what we've got right now yeah and you haven't touched the stick for some time must be nice especially with the olympics so far away i mean there's no there's no need to and it, it must be some somewhat refreshing for you or yeah I, definitely i've i certainly used the first few weeks of isolation just to you know sticks down use it as that really normally get probably 
a good three to four week block in the summer after a Europeans or, or that major summer competition for us where we can just put sticks down and not worry about hockey whatsoever. Yeah. And the first few weeks of isolation here definitely sort of reflected that. Like, gosh, like there's no reason to be, uh, to be training. Like the Olympics is, you know, 18 months down the line now. Let's just, let's just refresh. Um, yeah. And I think you, you definitely do need that, especially at my ripe old age of 33, <laughs> I've been doing it for over a decade to find a little window where, you know, hockey obviously is really important to me and I, and I love playing the sport, but there are times where you just need to, um, mm. yeah, just uh, let the mind focus on other stuff. I think it's really, really important. True. Now I have to ask, you do mention your age. I mean, you're very sprightly and very sprightly, quick. Yeah. <laughs> for anyone who's seen you play, but, you know, delaying the Olympics by a year, did you ever think that that would be an issue with performance or anything like that? Was mm. it a worry or? Not for me personally. Mm. I, I don't know whether it's a mindset or just like biomechanically. Like I've got a lot of confidence in my body. And I think yep. that that ultimately when the news um, came through, was it was a no-brainer to yeah. go to the Olympics, potentially yeah. be captain of the Olympics. It yeah. has been a massive goal. For sure. Um, and just to push that back for another 18 months, I, I think my body's capable of, of doing so. Now, of course, there are a couple of doubts that, that creep in. Um, partly, I had other things sort of lined up mm. post-Tokyo. T- post mm. um, as with all of the other GB guys would have had something lined up um and goes same probably goes for you Aussie guys as well but yeah it was sort of I got quite excited about the whole summer as like yeah. a as a as a few months so it would have like obviously all being well get picked to go to Tokyo give it my best shot there hopefully get some success and then st- sort of like start the next chapter in my life um yeah. so yeah that sort of <laughs> gets gets put on hold um yeah. I know that they've actually playing abroad, um, playing in Holland and Belgium and Germany for quite a few of the, the squad has been a big, not contentious issue, but has been a big issue on um, that's been raised in several of our sort of um, Skype calls and stuff. Um, the fact yeah, that they so, can't they can't continue yeah, those so, plans because of all this. Yeah, that's been a big big issue everywhere. I think. Yeah, I, I don't know how many we we would have had. Maybe five or five or six from. Mm from our current squad looking to go and play in, in Holland. Some are sort of like signed, sealed, contracts all sorted, accommodation sorted. And yeah, that just like that, that post-Olympic year is always such a, it's, it's a nice year. You yeah. know, you've worked so hard for a whole cycle and then just to um, continue to have hockey as a focus, but albeit with not so much pressure. Intensity. In a, yeah. yeah in a in a good like meeting new people and pushing yourself in a different in a different ways is, is um something that i i i loved has always been enc- encouraged of me to go and do and um yeah it's just a shame that it's not going to necessarily happen next year for for some of the guys um yeah yeah but hopefully as long as the dutch clubs are or belgian german clubs are still keen for it then um I reckon there might still be some wiggle room with the with the uh with the following season. Yeah. It so is I mental think... actually. Because the the Olympics, I mean now that it's been pushed to twenty twenty one, it kinda goes Olympics, 
Commonwealth Games, World Cup, yeah, Olympics. I think the Commonwealth is a little bit later on in the year this time. Is that in twenty twenty two? Is that? Yeah. Not sure. So I think that gives. I think it's. Um, I think it's the summer of twenty twenty two. Yeah. Okay. So that gives a year in between. A year in between where yeah. there might be an option for people True. to go and play abroad. Um, but who knows? Who, who knows? knows? It's hectic. Anyway, we're going <clears> to, <throat> some would say controversially, leave isolation and everything that that entails for the moment. See what I did there. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're going to go um, to you and your hockey journey. Now, just to introduce you to um, some of the listeners, I've been doing some background research on you. I do know you outside of the context of this chat but any surprises come up yeah there actually are um you use three words to describe yourself in a recent interview in a recent interview yeah do you know <laughs> here we are? go <laughs> one is happy which judging by the smiley face i'm not sure it's because mm. you're talking to me or because the birds are chirping <laughs> or what's that but happy determined and coffee is the third one um okay i can't remember writing those but um we'll go with it yeah yeah i mean two adjectives and a and coffee is that what is <laughs> what does that mean? Um, yeah, I think I'm, it means uh, you, you're made of made of coffee. Like you, you do love your coffee. No, or? no, 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 no. I think I, I probably just can't survive without it. To be honest, right? Okay. Whether that's a good thing or bad, probably a very bad thing. But um, that's oh, you. This is going to sound terrible. But like sometimes, right. <laughs> I actually, like, for, for, like it's the first thing that comes into my mind when I wake up in the morning. It's like, right, so let's fit the machine on. Let's get the espresso going. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, when we were talking about this, interview, we were trying to figure out, out a time that matched up with Australian time and the UK and yeah. 11 o'clock AM was decided on because it gave you time to wake up and have a coffee. And that's 11 AM. That's not, uh, that's pretty late. One that's pretty late. That I mean, we're, I'm in isolation. I can't, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not the true. busiest guy no, at the no, moment. Anyway. Um, um, but yeah. And the other, the other thing is that one of your teammates actually, um, Luke Taylor has named you as his favorite teammate. Uh, obviously. And in, bra- well, <laughs> and in brackets, he says, Ken Shamrocks. Uh, does that name mean anything to you? And what, what does that tell us about? Yeah, that's my, <laughs> I, that's my gamer tag on, um, <laughs> oh, okay. I'm a big gamer. gamer I make no but... secret of it. Yeah. I'm a yeah, big no, gamer. And I know you are too. Um, <laughs> so don't try and act cool. Um, but yeah, actually the isolation has provided a good, good amount of time to, uh, finally none of this really. hockey stuff you got to worry about. You can just exactly. give me what's really finally, important. I think. Esports are going to make the Olympics one day, aren't they? So I think I can. Um, ah, I get see. Ahead of the, curve. the dual um, sport cross code Olympian. Few of yeah, those actually, wow. not many. No. Um, but yeah, if they if they have Call of Duty in the Olympics, then you'd be I'm there. Yeah. Okay. All right. So we've got coffee and gaming. That's a good start so far. We're going to go back to hockey briefly because it is topical um, to my podcast. How'd you start? You started when you were six six years old, and I think. It also says that your first hockey memory was uh, watching your old man play. So obviously it was a mm. family affair, very much like it is in Australia. Is that is that fair that it's a family yeah, sport? I think, in, in yeah, Canada? there's a lot of similarities across um, both countries in, in, that, in that respect. Yeah, my dad played hockey and cricket. My early memories of, of dad were, were sport, um, mm. being around 
the changing rooms or um, you know being stood at the side of the pitch, whether it's cricket or hockey. Um, yeah, good some some good memories. But I think um, the story goes, as far as my parents tell me, that was about as soon as I could walk, basically, I was about one years old. Dad just sort of like cut down one of his old wooden hockey sticks, threw it in my hands and got me going that way. And um, I didn't start properly until I was about six because I couldn't really get any competitive stuff. There was not many under four leagues going on. <laughs> but um, there, were, there were certainly some good people locally, good coaches, um, who, were, who were willing to just chuck me in at the deep end. So mm. there was a summer hockey camp that ran for a few weeks. It was under nines and above. Um, but my dad had, or my mum had a word with um, this guy called Sean O'Grady. Um, and she said, look, my son loves hockey. He's six years old. He won't be any bother. Do you mind if he comes along? And Sean said, yeah, great. They're probably struggling for numbers. <laughs> so yeah, great. In you come. And um, yeah, we just... So I think when I look back on my career, there's been a lot of like just being chucked in at the deep end, a bit like that first early experience. Um, so the sort of progression through British hockey is that you'd find a, a, you'd either most likely start at school, mm. um, but there are a lot of very good clubs around as well. So you, and schools often link into clubs quite nicely. So you're either playing at a club or a school from the age of six. Yeah. You'd be playing competitive hockey, uh, hockey like under nines, under elevens, under thirteens, all the way up to under eighteens, and um, you then get you know representational um, honours. So England split up into I don't know how many counties. Probably I'm going to get this so badly wrong. Probably like 30, 40 counties. Um, that's a quote, yeah. Yeah, that's a quote. Gosh, um, <laughs> my county was Nottinghamshire, and they had like their like their own hockey uh, body, Notts Hockey, mm. and they they actually, although it's pretty old school, lots of drills and um, old school coaching back in the day, but it certainly set me up pretty nicely. Like lots of just passing between cones and you know receiving and leading. I just. It was every Friday night down at um, Beeston Hockey Club. This was before I joined Beeston. Mm. I was from a small town called Newark, and um, yeah, we sort of—I got picked to play in the in the Notts County like under fourteen team when I was eight years old. <laughs> uh, so I think that might still be a record. And I remember turning up and playing, and like the kit was just. 10, like 10 times too big. It, st it still is far, often far too big for me most of the kit that we get but um, yeah I remember playing I just had like the cheapest wooden stick that probably would snap if you put any sort of force <laughs> through it luckily I was still pretty small and can hit a ball hard um, under 14 that's ridiculous that's surely illegal I mean you would have been knee might, I think it actually kids. might be illegal these days it has to be illegal that's important like, come but on. this was back in the 90s mate I don't know oh, if you, you probably don't have any memories of the 90s yeah. Um, but yeah we, I, do, I do have some really really good memories of, of that sort of under under 9s to under 14s sort of period in my life we had School hockey in the UK is, is absolutely dominated by private schools. Okay. Um, they can afford to have like the pick of the coaches. They can bring kids on scholarships. Um, they've often got facilities that are better than 
majority of the hockey clubs um, in the UK. So the school, the school scene is, in the private school scene, is huge. My early, early experiences, I didn't go to a private school. Mm. I was, um, yeah, a, a local state school. But we did have one coach who was passionate about hockey. And he basically took the, the school football team, which was only like seven or eight aside. Um, he basically just added me to that team. They were the gifted athletes. He knew they could, you know, run around for half an hour in a, in a, in a match. And he added a couple of hockey players to that mix. And we actually went all the way through uh, local competitions, all the mm. way up to the national finals under 11s. Um, so that was John Hunt Junior School, and we were we were playing the, all the big private schools. Uh, yeah. I think we were the first ever non-private school to make the national finals, okay. and we didn't win. We got absolutely destroyed when we got <laughs> to the national final. What I don't think we was shaping up to be. But, Still, yeah. yeah. But that, That's you know, awesome. like, I think just seeing how you didn't necessarily have to have the greatest set of hockey players no disrespect to some of those guys because some of them did go on to become very good hockey players but we were all quite raw mm. um, but what we actually went on like what we had in terms of team camaraderie and you know just those dynamics certainly mm. gave us that edge all the way through to those national finals and I think that's something that stayed with me ever since that's interesting because I mean like like Australia um, the UK is obviously pretty sports mad um, yeah. it doesn't mean you guys are necessarily any good at it but I mean, we, we share that, I guess, in both our countries. So, you know, our, our hockey doesn't get much of a look in because we're, you know, competing with soccer, um, rugby union, rugby league, AFL, pretty much any other sport. And it sounds like UK is pretty similar, but it also sounds that hockey is going pretty well in the UK, especially when you talk about the private schools and how it's quite big in there. How, how does that all yeah. work? Uh, yeah, there's no doubt about like hockey it does struggle to pick up um you know column inches in the in the papers um much interest on tv i mean it's with the, with the addition of the pro league and that sort of like regular like calendar of fixtures it certainly mm. helps um but actually trying to get like the domestic product on tv has been quite tricky yeah um i know like in the past the england hockey have like they've had to pay for the production up front and but it's never really sort of gone over the line. Um, mm. And there's, I'm sure there are loads of reasons that go into that. I, hockey, that. Hockey is a popular sport in terms of participation numbers. Um, mm. And I think that's in large part because of the school system. So many, yep. so many people play hockey at school, but then give it up at the age of 16 or 18, unless you go on to university where hockey is still still a big sport you, you you probably continue to play or be a part of a, a club locally um so yeah in terms of participation numbers hockey probably does compete with with most except for football which is just enormous here you, yeah i mean i'm sure you, well we travel the world and you know even when we come over to to perth or sydney you've still got the english premier league stuff being shown all <laughs> over like you know liverpool still making headlines which is it's just absurd really yeah, so we're, we're definitely competing against those sports. But I think we are starting to, We've had some really good leadership over the last few years and mm. got some good direction. And the international stuff, I think, will always be able to sell itself. It's just... It's, I'd love to see the domestic game get a bit more exposure. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, like, I don't know if we need to go to some sort of, like, 
online model. I don't know. I just think that need. Yeah, I, I think it sort of has to be. We we need to start trying to um, stream games. Mm. I think every club should, you know, be encouraged to find some way of streaming their games or make it certainly accessible in like a highlights package. Yeah. Because I think the best leagues in the world do that and have done that for a long time. I think the reason so many people want to go and play in Holland is because when you're an aspiring hockey player growing up and you start to see what's going on in the hockey world, the first thing that comes up is Holland mm. because there are highlights of the, the games. And that's, that's what I did when I was a teenager. Watch the Dutch highlights and see how Bloemendaal and Amsterdam and that sort of, you get accustomed to those sort of household hockey names. But um, So they've been sort of doing it for a while. Mm. Um, I wonder if we can possibly learn any lessons there. It's interesting. I mean, looking from an Australian perspective, um, never having played a club comp in Europe, it seems like the infrastructure is there in the UK. I mean, in Australia, we've got seven, eight different major club competitions, just considering the the vastness of the country, whereas you guys Mm. have the capacity to have one Premier League. And um, I mean, that in itself would mean that it's going to be a very, very strong competition. So, yeah, what do you, what do you yeah. think about it? Yeah, well, it, it is a strong competition. I think we, we, there, are some, there are some very strong clubs. I think I've played for Beeston all my life. We're, like, we're in a bit of a... Um, um, we've sort of gone full circle in a way. Like I, When I first joined, we were like in Division 1, below the Premier League, like trying to get promoted. We got promoted, went on in quite a short space of time to get our first national title, won it a few times. And now we're like sort of a mid table side trying to find our identity again and get a good balance and blend of players. Compare that to Surbiton who are positioned quite closely to Bisham Abbey, which is where the centralized GB program is, um, is based. Surbiton have picked up, I don't know, basically a new team of international players in the past few years. And that's, that goes for Wimbledon, uh, Old Georgians. Um, and this, this is a very quick snapshot of what's going mm. on. Some of these yeah. clubs have been trying to build for years and years. And blah, blah, blah. But it's, um, it is, I think the, league, the, the English league at the moment is as competitive as, as it's ever been. But it's, mm-hmm. it's not, although it's called a national league, we're, we're sort of lacking that sort of, there's only one team in the north, I think, who feature, okay. and they're from Manchester. Right, okay. Um, and they almost got relegated this year. And I think if you want it to be a proper national league and be, you know, representative of, of the nation as a whole, I think this, the centralised programme hasn't really helped that. And the players, of course, are always going to move to where they're told told to move because you want to play for England and, and Great Britain. Is that um, how it works? Are there yeah, affiliations? Pretty much. Right, okay. Um, so let's take... So me, for example... Mm-hmm. Um, I still play for Beeston, who are 100 miles away from Bisham Abbey. I live mm-hmm. two miles away from Bisham Abbey. Mm. Um, but I I made the decision to to keep playing for my club. It means a bit more traveling and it, yep. it can be a bit tough. It definitely is tough. But um, I quite like that. But then you compare that to, say, Phil Roper, mm-hmm. who uh, is originally from Chester, was playing hockey in, at uni in Sheffield, once he got the chance to come down and join the GB England program, he moved down to Maidenhead, just lives up the road from me, but he didn't want to continue to travel back to his home club or wherever. Mm. So he just joins a local club, which is like common sense. Like yep. 
you know, nine, nine out of 10 people would do the same. But yeah. what that's done is really focus that sort of yeah, the elite pool of players across mm. just a handful of clubs. Mm. And so all those clubs that are just out of, out of reach. So I guess if you live, if your club, sorry, is based more than 20 miles away from Bisham Abbey, you're probably mm. unlikely to really attract mm. a lot of the, the cream of the crop. Yeah. Right. Um, and that's something that I think does need to be addressed. It's not an easy one. Mm. It really isn't. Mm. But there, I think if you want a really healthy national league, that sort of has to be looked at. Um, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's an interesting comment between like building up your national league, I guess, and then taking the top of the national league and making them even better. Now I'm going to briefly interrupt here to introduce a feature of the show. We'll call it our Hero of Hockey segment. We know that community sport flourishes on the back of hardworking volunteers who give up their time and effort simply for the love of it. And we want to give you, the listener, the opportunity to contact us and tell us who deserves to be our Hero of Hockey for the week. Tell us who they are, what club they're from, and what they've done for the sport, and we'll give them and your club a shout-out. So get in touch via our socials, and your nominee could be chosen for the next episode. This week's Hero of Hockey is Dave Willett from the Norths Hockey Club in Newcastle. Now, I've had the pleasure of being coached by Dave over the years and can only add that he's a brilliant man of hockey who, as a coach, you'd run through a brick wall for because you can be pretty sure he'd have already done it himself. Dave's contribution to hockey in Newcastle and New South Wales has been phenomenal to say the least. In the past 25 years, he's been the driving force behind North's Hockey Club's success to be not only a powerhouse club in the Hunter region, but also recognised as a leading club in the wider state of New South Wales. In the 17 years of the combined Hunter Coast Premier Hockey League, as a player coach and now coach, Dave has led Norse to the grand final on all but one occasion, winning an impressive eight titles. Dave is credited with resurrecting the junior club when his son started playing, taking Norths from just three men's teams to the 11 teams that North have today. He's coached at every age group for Norths, Newcastle, and for New South Wales junior state teams. He serves as the North club president, the Newcastle Junior Boys President, sits on the Newcastle Men's Committee, is the Newcastle Senior Coach and the Assistant Coach of the New South Wales Pride who took out the inaugural Sultana Brand Hockey One League in 2019. With an incredibly diverse portfolio of involvements right across hockey in New South Wales, Davis previously noted how good it was to one day be coaching the elite and the next day coaching a group of beginners and watching them smile when they make their first trap, tackle or score a goal. A wonderful and humble servant of the game, Dave deserves every bit of recognition he gets. So, thanks for all you do, Dave. Hockey appreciates your efforts. Now it's back to Adam Dixon, who's going to paint a picture of what high-performance hockey looks like in Great Britain and what might be needed to break into the mainstream. With a centralised program, you're kind of pouring a lot of your effort into those, what is it, 27 for you guys? Yeah, yeah. Well, 27. Yeah, a couple more, but yeah. So you guys train the, what's the setup like for the, for the yeah, so we're, we're essentially employed by GB hockey mm-hmm. and therefore, uh, f- five days a week, we, we train as a national squad, which yep. is a huge strength of ours, especially when you compare yeah. that to, um, some other countries. I, I, I don't know who, who we could pick. I don't know, maybe like New Zealand or something, mm-hmm. you know, just to have that, um, contact time to be able to train day in day out like work yeah. on whether it's pressing or 
yeah. you know, corners or anything like that. Like you can actually make quite noticeable gains like within a short space of time. Mm. Whereas if you're on that sort of like camp based structure, you're always having to revisit and come back. Probably going to be sitting on the fence a little bit yeah. because I think the centralized program is really good and it's got GB hockey to where it is currently. Um, can we make it better? Almost certainly. Um, but we, we're not in a, we're not in a bad place. I guess it's quite similar in a way to what you boys do over in Perth. So you've got guys traveling all across yeah. the country, relocating, and then you can, you know, build something together and build a good, good program off the back of that. Yeah. It is interesting. It, it, it's, it's certainly, um, centralized program, like I said, has its, has its benefits and its disadvantages. Part of it is like, again, I don't want to sound too, um, like I'm taking this for granted, but like mm. sometimes too much of a good thing can sort of like wear you down. So like actually doing the same, like being in the same place week after week, it just sort of, it, it can potentially, if not managed well, just end up, you know, snowballing. And if you get into a bit of a rut with your game or your sort of mental health, like that's quite hard to then get out of if you're in that constant same environment and there's no sort of interventions coming in. I think we've made over the last couple of cycles, um, big, big steps forward that I'm trying to think of some examples of, like we have loads of like mental health support, like a great team of like psychologists and they feed into the coaches and, and stuff quite well and checking in with players. So like definitely the, the well-being and the welfare of, of the squad and the team is really well taken care of. I think probably one of the bigger things of, of having the bigger advantages of having a centralized program is that you don't have to train a million miles an hour, hundred percent every single day. So like getting, finding that workload balance is really important. And I think that's probably the biggest difference over, let's say, um, when we first started doing centralized in 2012, 13, we would train five days a week and it would be tough. Like you'd be coming home, your legs, you'd be like hanging on, like wondering yeah. whether you could make, even turn up to train tomorrow. You get a few guys falling ill, but now I think we manage that situation a lot better. There's uh, yeah, it really feels like the, the sessions, the weeks, the blocks are really well planned out. And I don't, I, off the back of that, I don't think, unless it's like a big impact injury, we don't get many sort of like, um soft tissue injuries i think i think generally we've we've got it we'll, we can probably do it better but i think we've we've got it down yeah um, well sounds like it's there's a lot of benefits to it and it, it obviously i mean going back to the the point before building up the rest of the competition versus um sharpening those at the top um it's definitely something that we think about in australia having Hmm. Uh, the big process of relocating to Perth and the and the high performance center over there. And I guess the interesting thing for me is that um, I assume that the problem wouldn't be so big for you guys in GB because, like, for example, you you can still go back and play for your home club and you're still playing in all in the one competition. But um, it's obviously not that simple. And the way you're explaining it, you know, training yeah. means that you don't really have the luxury to go and play for your home club if you're in, you know, if you're from Manchester or whatever anyway. There's always has been a bit of like, clubs are anti anti-establishment and mm. you know like like to rock the boat and there's a bit of it coming back the other way uh, which is not a bad thing if you want the best for the sport you need to be sometimes at loggerheads and and trying to thrash things out but i don't think we've we've yet come to a a league structure training structure that uh, basically the, the calendar as a whole that really complements 
everything. Can we ever get to a place like that? I don't know. There's always going to be someone who's kicking up a fuss, no matter what, mm. what gets put in place. But um, yeah, I think, but like, you know, you know, Holland, they don't have, I think they train, they do have like a centralized program, but it's sort of like just a few days a week or a couple of days a week. Certainly the, like the, their geography, like geography allows them to do that small country. It doesn't take long for any of them to get around the country. And I think, I, I do think that's probably the same for England. Although we're a bigger country, it's not, it doesn't take that long to drive from one side of the country to the other with a bit of good forward thinking and planning. You could probably have people living anywhere in England or UK. And if you weren't training so often, like, you know, you could be putting money into travel expenses and I mean, travel takes its toll, but that, that, there are definitely other models that we could we could look at. I'm not saying we've got it perfect right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could be something to think about in the future. With the centralized program, does it mean that you guys can somewhat live as professional athletes, or is it still very much a, a semi-pro sport in the UK? Good question. I think you have to consider yourself as a professional, mm-hmm. and I think you have to have that attitude that you know you um, it's full time. Mm-hmm. I think there's only one one guy in our squad, George Pinner, who has a job outside of hockey currently Mm. Um, but being a goalkeeper I think maybe he has that sort of physical space to be able to or mental space to be able to go and throw himself into something else Um, but I think my personal experience is that if if I go to training I I don't feel like I can do anything else other than play (laughs) hockey and the centralised programme has helped me be a professional hockey player for the last yeah I really consider it a full time job for the last sort of Eight years, I guess. Okay, so it's um, nine to five. What's the what's the day look like? Um, I think you sort of have to treat it like a nine to five. It may, mm-hmm. it might not. You might not have to be at Bisham Abbey for, for um for eight hours a day, but you would certainly be in in the morning. Probably latest start would be about ten, ten a.m. Whether that's a gym or a pitch session. For me, that's quite easy. Just to drive ten minutes up the road. Other guys live in London, so that could be like a. 45 minutes to an hour commuting mm-hmm. we train for a couple of hours or gym for a couple of hours probably have like a meeting in the middle and then do something if it, if, it, if, it, if it was hockey in the morning it'd be gym in the afternoon vice versa generally sort of follows that pattern monday yeah i'll, I'll run through the week so monday would be uh, gym in the a.m hockey in the p.m uh tuesday would be hockey sort of midday wednesday is uh sort of off day or like a recuperation day. So you'd still be doing some activity, but I'd like jump on a bike for like 45 minutes and it's quite hard work, but it certainly sets you well up for the rest of the week. Thursday is a double hockey session day. Uh, no, take that back. Thursday is a hockey in the morning, gym in the afternoon, and then Friday hockey. And then you've got club hockey and things on the weekend as well. Mm-hmm. And then if you have got a club local to you, you probably probably do have some demand from the club to go and train with them in one of those evenings that week so it all just rack up i've been to uni mm. you know got got a degree but mm. right now i wouldn't no way would i be able to juggle a job with um it sounds intense with, uh, hockey training demands yeah yeah i guess that's different. probably similar to what you guys do in australia um on a weekly sort of and a couple of gym sessions and maybe like five to six pitch sessions yeah yeah it's a little different i mean we we train in the mornings and and outside of of working hours so that we can kind of like we're firmly in that semi-pro um space i mean 
it's definitely not enough to to set you up for any much longer than than after you've retired i guess and um i think the thing about hockey australia as well is that there's not a lot of wriggle room to make much more money off clubs especially us Mm. in um over in perth there's a draft system which means that we we if we do play club hockey in perth we don't get paid for it at all which i think is maybe a little different to the way it works out in the uk yeah i think the um basically the the club environment has really changed over the last 10 years there's i mean there have always been english clubs and it it sort sort of tends to move around a little bit if there's um a rich benefactor comes in as a chairman or president or something and he wants to put some money into the club that he's played for all his life and that does happen from time to time so there's always been people getting paid mainly when in my early days it was Aussies or Kiwis or Saffers coming over stealing all our money but um, no we definitely had some good good players come over in years gone by but more recently especially when the centralized program kicked in and some of these because London is a bit of a well definitely is the hotbed of hockey in the mm. UK a lot of school and club activity around here some of the smarter clubs caught wind of what was going on knew that there were going to be 30 top athletes joining the centralized program and it became a bit of a you know a bit of a frenzy as to mm. who could who could sign who in a short space of time and some clubs have done much better than others you know look at Wimbledon Hampstead and Westminster Surbiton they've done really well and have had domestic success over the last few years you could also compare that with Reading who arguably the closest team to Bisham Abbey this year I think they got relegated and they've been one of the best. They've won the European cup in you know, mm. in the last 15, 20 years. Um, but they just, I don't know what, I don't know what it was about the club, but none of the GB players flocked, flocked to Reading hockey club. And they've, yeah, they've missed, a, they've missed the trick there. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's quite funny. So there are definitely some guys now, I, I don't know what people are getting paid. It's not my, position to really comment but there's definitely guys supporting their their income from uk sport yeah and gb hockey um through the club system and i guess yeah compare that with the situation in perth again we're very lucky that we can tap into that resource and um and be professional athletes and have that as our sole focus um Mm. and i think when you're yeah, when you're serious and um, when you're serious about sport and you've got Olympic aspirations, want to you go and do things. That definitely helps to be able to focus solely on uh, on the sport that you're um, chasing definitely. success in. Definitely, it's um is is the club comp. Does that make a difference towards national team selection? Yes, it does. Yes, it does. Mm-hmm. There aren't. I mean, there's only we've only got three three coaches within the. We're on the men's side of things anyway. You've got Danny, Russell, and Quan. And um, Quan plays for one of those clubs still at the age of 40, whatever he is. And they're still like, they're winning titles. He's still one of the best players in the league. Um, if he wasn't Trinidadian, he might still be playing for him. <laughs> um, but they can only be a handful of games. You know, they can't see everything. And I think there's in the past, there have been criticisms of of coaches not turning up and seeing um, the grassroots game and seeing, mm. you know, picking players that not that haven't necessarily come through the system. Mm. 
because we all know, you know, there's, there's guys who miss out on junior representative yeah, stuff, sure. develop late, and then they um, and they peak in their mid twenties, say, and uh, there has been a lack of that, I think, over certainly my, you know, fifteen twenty years in in hockey. More recently, I think uh, Danny has given he's given some younger guys a chance, and I yeah. think that's that's because they deserve it. That's because it adds competition to the places amongst the rest of the guys. But over the last um, 18, you know, 24 months since he's been uh, involved, I think we've probably had more debutants in that period than we maybe have done in the six or seven years before that. Um, and some of those are now mainstays in the squad. So it goes to show that if you're doing it, if you are doing your research, like, there are some very good players in the English league. Mm. Um, now, whether they will make it at international level for whatever reason is a different question, but you need to feel like that those people are being looked at. Um, and there, there are definitely various mechanisms. I think they do hold a camp for clubs can nominate players that they, who they feel haven't been seen in the best light or have been, have been missed out. And they come to Bisham Abbey and have a camp and there's a chance for them to get picked and brought into the team. But um, I guess it's, I don't know. I guess the NHL or the the hockey one thing for you guys is probably a showcase event for for younger guys. I guess the National League is to an extent, but it's over, um, yeah, longer period of, of time. So, um, yeah, I think it's getting better, but I think ultimately still it, it still favours those who come through the system from under sixteen, yeah. under eighteen, twenty one. If if you're in there and you manage to stay in there, it's definitely better but it's it's it's, um it is changing i mean it sounds like there's a lot of you know the administration and all these sorts of questions like they're they're really difficult um and you've kind of touched on a lot of the tensions and that sort of stuff that exists but for the most part it sounds like quite a a well-oiled machine and certainly when we come and play in england and the uk even just the the theater of it i mean i really enjoy coming and playing playing in the uk because there are great crowds um it's well run there's always a half-time entertainment. Not that we're focusing on that. We're focusing on the team talk. But there's always <laughs> something going on. Um, and there, it, it just looks like a lot of fun. And I've, I've been and watched tournaments in London as well. And it's a fantastic place to watch watch hockey. So so certainly, as you said, that international side of things is pretty well looked after, it seems like. Yeah. I think you know, it's, it's quite nice to hear you say that. And I think as English people, we're often sort of, pessimistic <laughs> and maybe don't like you know like little things like the organization of a tournament yeah. when we play at lee valley the half like you've even mentioned halftime entertainment like i mean how much do we think as the hockey sort of nation in the uk how much do we really think about that and appreciate that we've probably got it much better than we actually realize as British like to find something to complain about <laughs> most of the time um so actually i do think I mean, we used to ho- we used to host international competitions at a small regional club, try and cram as many people in as we could. Yeah. Didn't really feel like a professional, like well managed event. And we've certainly now with having Lee Valley, um, you know, found a, a home. And yeah, definitely. I mean, you only have to look at that Women's World Cup. Yeah, twenty eighteen uh, was it? Mm. My word, that sort of. I mean, it definitely helped that they won the gold in Rio and they had a lot of um, publicity and media attention off the back of that. But, I mean, there's, 
never seen crowds for a hockey game yeah like that like in, that. in the uk and it's not even though like we have that home it's not the easiest part of london to get to you've still mm. got to walk and you know it's a bit a little bit fiddly but people came in their droves and yes unbelievable and i think um as with anything though a lot of this is all underpinned by um firstly like good organization mm. uh good people who like mean well have hockey at their um in their best interests but most importantly it could you know it's underpinned by success and the, the girls have done such a great job over yeah. the last cycle to yeah. well and the cycles before that because they, they meddled at, at london they really built something and that um if I put it bluntly, they kept as as a men's program. The girls kept our funding in place. Like they were hitting medal targets, we weren't. So they kept us in the job. So thank you very much um, to the women's squad. But um, yeah, it, it is. If we want hockey to continue to grow, and you know, like I've already mentioned, I'd love to see the domestic game get on TV or be you know put out there in some shape or form. Like there needs to be success at the top, and I think. Um, that is going to be really important. There's going to, uh, the, yeah, we need to find that tipping point where we, um, yeah, we, we we need to we need to force people to you know come and watch us or mm. start writing articles about us or, mm. um, yeah, we need to sort of force that hand a little bit. Um, but yeah, we're not we're certainly not in a bad place when you compare it to to some other, other places. Yeah, some other places, you know. I'm trying to think of some of the worst competitions I've ever done. I probably shouldn't. Um, uh, it is interesting. You guys, I mean, you guys, when we come and watch and we come and play you um, in Lee Valley, like it's in London, it's the home of hockey. It's at the site of the 2012 um, London Olympics. I mean, yeah. you guys are stars there and the women's program in particular, like there are some genuine sporting stars Mm. coming from the hockey program who who seem like they're in they're in the limelight of wider british sport and i mean as you say like that is a crowded market but um yeah yeah it's interesting yeah there, de- there definitely are some some household names now i think you turn on like we've got a few sports tv shows talk shows and things game shows and um on the bbc and it's not it's not uncommon to see alex danson or mm. maddie hinch mm. um you know feature on one of those which is amazing. Like it's, yeah. it really is. Yeah. Um, so they've done, they've done absolute wonders for, um, for our sport. Yeah. I'd love to see being biased. <laughs> I'd love to see for, I'm not saying I'd be any good on a, on a TV well, show. I'd be awful. Yeah. Ratings would drop and people would stop <laughs> watching the show altogether. But the only is not lost on me that they're on the BBC and you're on, my podcast I mean, that's a pretty start from <laughs> hey don't knock yourself down <laughs> you're the next joe rogan mate. you're the next joe rogan big thank you to the production team of david moore tim collier and jimmy stevens if you do like the help side please like subscribe interact we'd love to hear from you you can find us at the help side on twitter facebook and Instagram. That's it for now. We'll catch you on the help side next time.